George, I'm London Lopate. Stephen March, a Canadian novelist and culture writer, begins his latest book by stating, quote, The United States is coming to an end. The question is how. And that it's descending into the kind of sectarian conflict usually found in poor countries with histories of violence, not the world's most enduring democracy and largest economy. The book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future, is published by Avid Reader Press, an imprint of Simon & Schuster, and it brings Stephen March to our show now. Welcome. Hi, how are you? I'm okay, although a bit scared after reading the book. Are you saying that it's not a matter of if but when, that a civil war is definitely on the way? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't say that at all. I mean, the expert opinion, uh, the latest expert opinion, puts the odds somewhere at around 67%. Uh, so I think, you know, I, I try and stay in the book as close to numbers as I can and as close to the sort of most defensible models that I can find. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I would say the odds are increasing. On the other hand, of course, nothing is inevitable. Like there is still there are still many uh, opportunities to uh, get off this particular road. You write that if you had read about the signs in another country, you would think a civil war had already begun. But because many Americans have an image of what civil war looks like based on the one we fought from 1861 to 1865, it seems like less of an issue. But no one predicted that one was going to happen at that time. That's right. Yeah. I mean, almost nobody saw the first civil war coming. Um, You know, it's kind of it's one of those things where in hindsight, it seems so obvious with bloody Kansas and the nullification crisis and the fights on the floor of the Senate and, you know, all the all the anger and dueling that it, that it, in, at West Point and so on, that it was inevitable. But, you know, at the time it was like even Fort Sumter was not considered like a, a moment where uh, it was, you know, for sure going to happen that there would be a civil war. Many, many people believed right up until the end that right up until it started that it, it, it wasn't going to happen. And I fear that now we're in a sort of similar moment where all the trends are there. I mean, the United States is a textbook case of a country headed to civil war. But we just kind of we can't really imagine, uh, you know, civil war happening in places with a jamba juice. You know what I mean? Like advanced democracies with with strong economies. So, yeah, I, I think I think it is hard to see these things coming because nobody wants them to come. So nobody sees them coming. Would our new civil war be more like what we've seen in places like Syria and, and Northern Ireland? I mean, we, the, we are a country that has almost 400 million guns and more than a trillion rounds of ammunition. So it, uh, if it does happen, <laughs> it'll be a big explosion. Yes, and a huge military, too, and 20 million veterans. So um, armed, definitely, but and expert as well. Um, but, you know, I, w- I would say that, you know, the United States is so huge and heterogeneous and just geographically massive that, what what a civil war would look like there as opposed to somewhere like Iraq or Syria is really hard to say. And historical analogs, both from its own history and, and other histories, are, are are really, you know, they can only guide you so far. Um, I, I would say that to me what it looks like, well, I mean, not just to me, to, to, to the experts that I spoke with and to the people who, you know, are planning for full spectrum operations in the homeland and the people also planning for military operations against uh, the U.S. government. Uh, yeah, it, 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 it works. It, it looks like sectarian conflict. It looks like chaos, a chaos with large quantities of political violence and then the attempt to oppose order against that chaos. Um, And it's 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 hard to see uh, 
you know, a, a, a easy, simple conclusion when that begins. You're a Canadian. Do you think that gives you a broader perspective of the situation? Yeah, I mean, I think we're... You know, because we have this, this we're, we're not Americans, but we have this kinship relationship to Americans where, you know, Northrop Fry, the great uh, Canadian scholar, said that a Canadian is an American who has rejected the revolution. <laughs> and I, I, I mean, I think that's that's broadly true. Like, a lot I, of know, people I, left the colonies and went to Canada after the end of the yes. of the Revolutionary War because they didn't want to because they didn't want to break with Britain. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, when my Italian ancestors landed at Ellis Island, they went west and then they just happened to go north. Right. Um, like there, there's a lot of a lot of similarities. And I have family in the States. I've worked in the United States. I've lived in the United States. I've made most of my living in the United States. Um, have you reported on, the on these hand, issues in the United States? Is uh, some of this book well, yeah, based on your own for resp- Canadian, report? Sure, reporting? for Canadian publications. And, you know, and then I had a column at Esquire for eight years. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, you know, I've been... I've been working in in America for for most of my life, but I do think being Canadian gives you, you know, we're familiar. We don't we're not we're not like Europeans where we some somehow think we're superior because we know we're not superior to Americans. But at the same time, there's a little bit of distance, and I think that's why I think that's why actually there are quite a few Canadian commentators in American life. You know, the Malcolm Gladwells of this world, um, because we we have familiarity with with a bit of distance and so and so things that seem really weird to us um you know like we we get sort of ha- we know why they're weird if you if you know what i mean your book is a work of speculative nonfiction, but haven't you drawn upon sophisticated predictive models and nearly 200 interviews with experts with civil war scholars military leaders law enforcement officials secret service agents agricultural specialists war historians environmentalists political scientists do they all see the possibility of a civil war in the near future well, um, certainly some of them do, but really it's a big work of synthesis, right? It's a bit like taking those agricultural experts who are really terrifying to talk to and putting their work in sort of a larger, broader political context in a way that they, they might have not seen themselves it was definitely part of the book. I mean, I based it on um, the the day after, which was a, a miniseries in the in the 80s. Uh, and you wrote an article and you wrote some articles some years back. Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. Well, I covered the Trump. I covered the Trump inauguration. You know, the, the model here is like uh, and I've been I know I crossed the country like I went to gun shows in Tulsa and I talked to, you know, uh, Oath Keepers in Ohio and I've been to prepper conventions and met. You know, I met the people who were involved in this. And I think there's no replication for seeing things on the ground. Um, but, you know, like what it is, is these imagined scenarios that are then backed up with the best available models, the best, you know, the best research, the best experts, uh, you know, that that sort of stuff. So that like not one word of it cannot be, you know, basically footnoted and say and say like, OK, this is where this is coming from, because some models are better than others. Right. Like the the economic models are incredibly weak. They don't I mean, I, they're in the book, but, you know, they're they're not particularly strong predictively, whereas environmental models are incredibly accurate predictively and some of the political science models are not really even predictive they're just facts like you know by night by 2040 30 percent of the country will control 68 percent of the senate so it, you know it like it building this stuff it, it, it's sort of building a portrait through through this work through 
through collating this work and synthesizing this work uh, to provide a picture where it's like, okay, this is where it's going. You well, know, this not, doesn't necessarily mean we're going there, but that's that's where the trend is going. Well, you're not alone. Last week, the New York Times no. ran an opinion piece headed, are we really facing a second civil war? And Barack Obama issued a statement last week in which he said about January 6th that the truth is that our democracy is at a greater risk today than it was back then. And you've said, yeah. you've said yeah. that you think January 6th might just have been the new Fort Sumter. Well, I don't think it's it's not the new Fort Sumter. I think this is not my idea. Somebody else said this, but I think it's pretty accurate. Is that what it's what it resembles to me is the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Like it's a it's a major act, but it's also just a premonition of the the big event that's that's going to happen and the real confrontation that's going to happen. Um, Yeah, I mean, certainly I did not come up with this idea of the next civil war on my own. Like this is this is based on a lot of of of, um, really strong and really well considered opinions from a lot of people. And uh, there there are all these uh, warning signs. For example, aren't some elected sheriffs openly promoting resistance to federal authority and militias are, are training and arming themselves in preparation for the, the fall of the republic? And we have uh, lots of stuff about this on the Internet. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no there's no lack of people who want an end to the United States. I mean, there's. The, the, the specific number is very hard to come up with, but there are probably 600,000 sovereign citizens alone. And those people just don't recognize federal authority as such. Plus, if you the, the hard right is really hard to get a grasp on. Like when you're writing a book about it, especially like anything that I'd written about them would not be true today. Like if I wrote something about them six months ago. They would they they morph so mm-hmm. quickly and they change so rapidly that, um, you know, it, it's like it's like really trying to hit a moving target, a fast moving target. And so they um, they, they change. They, they morph and fracture and reform in, in all these different forms. But there's certainly plenty of them, like much more than, say, there were left wing insurgents in, in the 60s, like like significant, like multiples, multiple times that. Haven't people in the military already drawn up battle plans for the next civil war? Well, yes, they have. I mean, um, now the military draws up all kinds of battle plans, right? Like that's their job. They draw up battle plans for every kind of eventuality. The specific difficulty of dealing with a potential counterinsurgency in the homeland, like a full spectrum operation in the homeland, um, is extremely complicated, not necessarily from a tactical point of view, because the u.s marines are the u.s marines and frankly they can beat anyone and they can certainly beat any uh they can certainly beat any militia not, like it's not it's like an nba team facing up against your ymc your local ymca sunday night squad like it, it's not a competition but um but the legal problems are really significant because it, it, essentially you're asked it, it to wage war against citizens who have rights is really impossible when you have to do things like get situational awareness and, uh, you know, shut off power to, to, to places and so on. So, yeah, the, the, the book goes into pretty heavily into the technical aspects of that, which are quite difficult. Um, but, you know, also the U.S. Constitution is not really built 
um, for these kind of emergencies. The, the emergencies that have come before have been really handled with, with great difficulty. I mean, only Lincoln could really get habeas corpus suspended, and that's only because he was a sort of genius at these pr- uh, procedural matters in, in Congress. So, yeah, it, it, like the, 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 the battle plans have been drawn up. They're, they're, they're illegal. Uh, the, the, the problems, the problems that the, the military would face in these situations are legal. And, and of course, the problems with counterinsurgency generally, which, you know, the U.S. has spent 70 years fighting counterinsurgency struggles and failing at them because they're essentially unwinnable. Well, the United States is made up of many different religious and racial groups, often in competition. And that's led to uh, many outbreaks of violence over the years, but uh, mm-hmm. nothing like a civil war. Well, I mean, it, it did lead to one civil war, um, and there was certainly quite a bit of violence in the 60s. Um, this is different for a number of reasons. The current crisis is different for, for basically two reasons. The first is that um, the institutions that guide American life are under threat in a way they really have never been before, and they're losing their legitimacy quite quickly. So, you know, only a recent poll showed that only 20 percent of Americans really have faith in their electoral system. Um, you know, the, the, the right believes in has, has always kind of had a strong secessionist part. But, you know, the, the left is catching up like 40 percent of Biden voting Democrats in California sort of somewhat supported secession as an idea. You also have things like by 20, you know, the, like the Senate malapportionment, which is making legitimacy really hard to see from the left. You know, if when the Supreme Court would, you know, five of the nine Supreme Court justices were selected by presidents who didn't win the popular mandate. And, you know, when they when they make their ruling on abortion, like half of the country is not going to regard it as legitimate, whichever way it goes. That's a, a very serious crisis. Um, and, and the other part is just the rise of the tolerance of violence, which is you know, which is rising. 30, 33% of Americans in a recent poll said that it's okay to use violence against your own government. So when you put those factors together, um, you do really reach uh, a, a big crisis. You know, as for the ethnic question, like the other thing is that America is about to enter a majority minority state. Um, and, you know, one of the one of the most fascinating pieces of research I saw in the book is that when it, all, all around the world, this isn't specific to America, as as minorities, as marginalized populations rise up, it's not necessarily the, the dominant party falling, but as as the as the people below them rise up, the the privileged and the the sort of um, the dominant group feels that as a threat and respond with violence. And you can see that everywhere. It's like the study itself actually originated out of India, but you can see it in, you can see it in Africa. You can see it all over the Middle East. And and now we're sort of seeing it in America. So those two things, institutional decline and, you know, this, this sort of demographic movement, those things together are a pretty powerful combination of factors. My guest on today's Leonard Lopit at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Stephen March, whose latest book is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future, published by Avid Reader Press. Why didn't the the Vietnam War, Watergate, civil rights protests, the assassination of, of JFK and Martin Luther King lead to civil war? Was trust in the institutions much higher during the 1960s? Vastly higher. And in, in, and in a number of ways that are measurable, but also I think just, 
you know, the Civil Rights Act passed with the majority of both parties, Mm -hmm. right? It it was a bipartisan bill. And, you know, today they can't even get together to mourn a fallen officer in Congress who was defending them. Like they can't even get together to do a moment of silence for a guy who literally lost his life defending their security, their personal security. I mean, it's astonishing. But also, I think when you look at something like Watergate, like in hindsight, what Watergate was, was the system working, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the press found corruption. They reported it. People believed them. Politicians reacted to people believing them. And both parties came to a decision that it was important for it was important for democracy rather than their parties to to take a stand on it. Not not one of those things you could say today with any confidence. Well, Americans took the press much more seriously then. But they maybe did, maybe they, they also, have a good yeah. reason at times to not take the press seriously today. Well, I, you know, I don't really um, to, to me, I'm trying to deal with what's on the ground. So I don't know whether people should trust the press or, or, or shouldn't trust the press. But I do know that they don't trust the press and that they have they have their own kind of. Uh, information networks, which are extremely skewing and siloing and uh, and and lead to these sort of this information distortion. But that that's actually kind of separate from institutional decline, like the, the trust in things like the church, the trust in things like um, never mind Congress, but, you know, very the police, uh, uh, the military, you know, except for the military, where, where trust is still very high, is in decline across the board. And that's really been true since the 70s. So, uh, you know, it, it's very easy, I think, to sort of blame the decline of the media or the rise of the Internet, the rise of Facebook and so on. But, uh, you know, I don't think the evidence really supports that. There seems to be a broad based decline of an institutional, um, you know, faith alongside a declining sense of national solidarity. And I, I mean, it's very unclear where it comes from, but it's it's clear that it's coming. Well, one issue that's been persistent since the American Revolution is the issue of states' rights. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, and obviously that was uh, a, a reason for the uh, the Civil War. But isn't mm-hmm. it now uh, leading to a widening gulf between hyperpartisan Republicans and Democrats? Well, you know, I think this is the point where being a Canadian kind of helps, because like to me, what it looks like is there are two countries. They have really different values. They, in fact, have different histories. Now they have different facts. Um, There's huge social differences between red state and blue state America, like uh, you know, red state, like in terms of things like church, church attendance, uh, proximity to an abortion provider, um, you know, whether you know people who are married, who are gay, uh, gun ownership, a, a whole ho- corporal punishment in schools. I mean, just a, just a whole host of things that are really divided by that slave state, non-slave state division that really began the country. And so it's, you know, to me, the, it's kind of like America always was a fusion of two countries that maybe should never have been fused together in the first place. Um, and and now the political parties are essentially emissaries of that difference. And people are talking um, they, about secession. Oh, secession is becoming much more popular all the time. And I think for obvious reasons, um, you, you know, like recent studies have shown about 58 percent of Trump voting Republicans support the idea of secession. But, you know, it. it 
even in when it was a marginal idea, it was always sort of there. I mean, even studies from like the the the, the early two thousand show about twenty five percent of Americans supported the idea of secession even then. Um, and two thousand eight, massive uh, uptick. I mean, unfortunately, it'll be impossible, you know, nearly impossible to do. Um, but yeah, I, I personally don't think secession is one of the worst case scenarios for the United States right well, now. Would a, a state like Texas actually be able to sustain itself? Because they're talking Texas about would sustain. do great. Yeah, I mean, Texas, Texas would be a, a very successful. I mean, well, look, I, who knows what the future is? But if you look at the stats on Texas as it stands, it's a very it would make a very successful country. Um, you know, huge economy. I, 40, I, I mean, I think it's the eighth or ninth economy in the world. It's slightly below Brazil and slightly above Canada in terms of economic size. Um, you know, 47th in population has diverse industry diverse population um you know and, and the same if california were its own country it would be the richest country in the world by a long measure by like, a long like about by about twenty thousand dollars of gdp per person so it like it, it's um yeah these are these are countries that actually could succeed as their own countries i mean of course they wouldn't be the united states of america anymore, well they right? would they have other be, they would have their own issues for example texas which yes. we is a red state has uh, a number of very liberal cities uh, austin yep. el uh, uh also san uh, antonio and houston uh and i would imagine that there would be an awful lot of tension uh if, if uh, it continued in some of its policies as a nation? Well, I don't think tension inherently is such a bad thing. It's when you, I mean, there's tension in my country too. Like there's tension in every country. The question is, where are the, where are the terms of negotiation of that tension? And also um, do the, do the people on the, on the, on other side of that tension regard themselves fundamentally as a unity? Right. Like fundamentally as on the same side, the same people. And, you know, increasingly, you just can't say that for the United States. There really are, you know, in this imagined civil war that I describe in this book, it's really a civil war over meaning. Right. Over what the meaning of America is and whether it's a white settler republic or whether it's a multicultural democracy um, and on, on what terms freedom um, exists. And I mean, I think, you know, a huge aspect of American history is the, tr the kind of states being held back from what they want by the fusion of these two things. I mean, it was also enormously powerful, but like imagine a New York state with meaningful health care and sensible gun policy. I mean, that would be a that would be a very different place. That would be and, and that would be a place where it really felt like it had achieved its political ends. So I think you do have to ask yourself at what point this federation is, and, and, and that goes for the other side, of course, right? That, go, that certainly goes for places like, you know, Florida and Texas and so on, where they, they really want, they, they want much less taxation. They want, they might, they want a, they have a completely different version of the role of government and they feel hampered by having to negotiate with the federal government. So, you know, at a certain point, is the United States as an entity holding back these regions from from their political fulfillment? Um, you know, I mean, that's a separate question than whether the actual act of secession, which is, you know, a, a huge bureaucratic nightmare. But uh, I, I mean, I think that's a question that Americans should be asking themselves, particularly in the light that the other 
option appears to be heading straight into, you know, mass violence. Well, you write, and I'm quoting, after the Trump years, the Democrats have attempted to solve the, the wounds inflicted on American institutions, but they remain overwhelmingly committed to the old ways, to the, the United States that they grew up in. So are you saying mm-hmm. that President Biden and House Speaker Pelosi talk a good game about the authoritarian threat that we face, but then do little to constrain that threat? And and uh, and if you are, what could they do? Well, I mean, um, they, they face like the Biden's, filibuster, uh, a, a Supreme Court, which has a strong political stand, um, the Voting Rights Acts being stuck in Congress and many people living in near desperate conditions. I mean, what they can do, there, there are two things that they can do. So the first thing, which. You know, Biden gave this big speech, which everyone said sounded good. But, you know, you have to remember that whenever uh, a Biden or a Republican gives a speech now, the only people listening to it are the people who are already on their side. I mean, that is that is just the fact of the matter. Like um, it is. It, it, so it's not going to convince anyone. You're not going to you're not going to you know, Biden's not going to give a great speech. And suddenly Mitch McConnell's going to be like, huh? Yeah. I have mm-hmm. violated the norms of the Senate. I really got to get my act together. That's not that's not really how this is going to work. Um, you know, if you're asking me what he can do, I priority one, like the first thing would be uh, to direct the FBI to crush domestic uh, terrorists, um, particularly where they've infiltrated police departments and particularly where they've infiltrated the military. And I mean, that to me is that's a that's a not a small task. That's a significant ask of the FBI, like even of the FBI, who are you know amazingly good at their jobs. Um, like that is a generational task to get white power movements out of police forces and out of the military. Uh, like I, I think that it would be akin to getting you know the mafia out of the NYPD. A huge struggle. As for the political tasks, I mean, I think the time has come to stack the Supreme Court uh, and the filibuster, uh, make Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico states. And, and, and because the idea that this this will somehow create a feeling of illegitimacy on the other side, well, they're already there. They're all, and they and they do not play by those rules. Right. They don't they don't need to feel Democratic support. They're playing entirely to their base. So, yeah, I mean, there are things that can be done. They're just, you know, unpleasant. You write, uh, again, I'm quoting, one way of reading the current political situation is that Republicans have only come to realize the collapse of the institutions before the Democrats. Meanwhile, the window to keep America Democratic is closing. Well, I mean, I think what we're seeing here, you know, the the term, the technical term for the United States as it currently stands is a complex cascading system. That's where different like, factors feed into each other it's like a weather system like factors feed into each other and then that's why that's why the unimaginable keeps happening like that's why um you know if you've gone back even five ten years and said there'll be tanks on the streets of washington on the fourth of july no one would have believed you right like the the, the extreme ter- or, or that a republican president would openly support north korean dictator like no one it would it would have been inconceivable so i mean one of the motives behind this book is like why does the unimaginable keep happening like why do we keep being shocked and i mean the reason is that there are these there are these sort of deeper trends that uh, uh, that underlie it um I think the Democrats have not really properly faced up to how deep those trends are and how 
the and how much the institutions at the at the bottom of this democracy are rotting and need to be uh, need to be fixed. Um, you know, when when only twenty percent of your people regard your electoral system as legitimate, it is it is time to have a big conversation. Right. Like it is time. It's not time to say, like, we got to preserve these institutions. It's time to have a big conversation about how these institutions work and what it is going to take to make them legitimate for the people of the United States. Well, the United States University of Virginia analysis of census projections by 2040 predicts that 30 percent of the population will control 68 percent of the Senate. Eight states will contain half the population. But uh, the Senate malapportionment, which you mentioned earlier, gives advantages overwhelming to white, non-college-educated voters. And in the, yeah. the near future, a Democratic candidate could win the popular vote by many millions of votes and, and still lose the election. Yeah, those aren't—see, that's not really a prediction to me. Like, those are, those are going to happen. Like, it's all—like— So they're projecting it. Prof- they're projecting, but like that—that's—that's—that's that's, that's demographic changes that are very slow and predictable, and like they have high rate of turnout. Like you know, that—that's th- that, not like some of these things are. You know, some of the models that I use in the book are, are stronger than others. I mean, that's that's barely even a model. That's just like when if the census keeps going the way it's going, that's what will happen. And the census, you know, those changes are very very glacial. They're very slow and profound and deep. Um, yeah, I mean, that same poll, 50 percent of the country will control 84 percent of the Senate. So what is the value of the Senate then? I mean, obviously, it has no value. It's right. just a it's just a democracy prevention machine. <laughs> right. Like it's it, it, it's a, a you know, it and, and, and everyone will see it. Right. Like it's not like it's not like this will be hidden from view. We will, like it's not like it'll be subtle. It'll be like Josh Hawley winning the presidency by while losing by eight. 10 million votes. I mean, Biden and Trump won the Electoral College by the same num- by the same number of Electoral College votes. Biden once won the popular majority by 7 million votes. Trump lost the popular vote by 3 million votes. And that's now like that's gonna, going to get much, much worse over the next decade and a half. Um, and, you know, as I said, that's not that's not a prediction. That's like well, this that's is happening. Not, this is not the first time that the, the person with the largest popular vote didn't wind up becoming president. We saw that later earlier with Bush. Yes, but I mean, I think there's going to be a difference. Like the the question that really I don't have an answer to is at what point the left no longer considers itself to be legitimately governed, like what that number is. Like, is it 20 million? Is it 10 million? If a president loses a popular vote by 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 10 million votes out of, you know, is that does that make them illegitimate? What what is the specific? Number? I mean, I don't know that. I, I do think already the like the Supreme Court, you know, it's it's its sense of legitimacy has been in free fall for the past two decades as it has gotten to be, you know, little more than a collection of partisan hacks. Um, but, you know, what do how many people regard it as legitimate? What what are the terms of its legitimacy? That's in flux. Like that's I don't have a prediction for that. That is that is changing on the ground. And, you know, it's like I don't but I don't think it can hold for much longer just because, um, you know, it's so evident that it doesn't really represent the, the will of the American people. And and also when you have these really basic failures of government, like like the United States only was able to appoint senators, uh, sorry, diplomats in December. 
like the Biden administration was only able to get a basic diplomatic corps almost a year after he'd been elected. Uh, you know, the, the government flirts regularly with defaulting on its debt, which is, you know, a, a real game of Russian roulette to play with your country's finances that they they they, they they're they're willing to do that. Um, and, and, you know, like the big bill. Build back better, you know, from a from the point of view of another mature democracy, like that's a win. That's a budget. That's not some big legislative achievement. Like in, in, in an ordinary mature government, that's the that's a basic task of government. And, you know, so even never mind these large questions like basic, basic aspects of just having a government are. In, are, are becoming threatened and, and, are, and are increasingly in decline and are increasingly at risk. And so, you know, that's troubling on a like in a, on an immediate basis. In your book, you imagine five scenarios that will lead to the collapse, and we'll discuss those after we take a little break. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest today on Letter Lopez at Large is Stephen March, M-A-R-C-H-E. His latest book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future, published by Avid Reader Press. And before I get back to our conversation, uh, I want to let you know that anyone who signs up to become a WBAI member during today's show with a one-time contribution of $75 or more, will receive a free copy of this book, The Next Civil War Dispatches from the American Future. Um, you can participate in this offer by going to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 during today's show. That's uh, give to WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. Again, uh, going to give it one more time, give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950. And don't forget to make that $75 donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. And thanks to all of you who do that. Um, Mr. March, how much does the fact that you've also written three novels play a role in the way that you see things? Because, you, because uh, as I said, you, you offer five theoretical triggers for a civil war. Was your a novelist side uh, in play there? Well, yes and no. I mean, um, like, obviously, I know how to handle scenes and a, a little dialogue. But, like, the, 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 you know, I wanted to write this book as simply as I could and as directly as I could and with as much impact as I could because I'm scared, right? Like, because I, I really think people need to know this stuff and they need to face reality. And, you know, so I wrote it to, to be clarifying, you know, to be like, okay, you know, one of the shows I was talking on earlier, they, they were a conservative show. And the guy asked me, do you think civil war is really that bad? I mean, it, <laughs> it, 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 it led to solutions last time. And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah. Like a civil war is the worst thing that can happen to a country. A lot like of people die, don't they? <laughs> 
600,000 people died the last time. I mean, South Carolina lost a third of its male population. Uh, like, it, 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 they're horrible. And they're and that's true everywhere, incidentally. Like, the English Civil War was the most brutal war England ever fought. Uh, certainly the American Civil War was the most brutal war Americans ever fought. Um, you know, it's they're, they're, they become very brutal and they become very um, savage quickly. And and continuously, and they're very hard to extricate them. You know, countries find it very hard to extricate themselves from. And so, I, excuse I, me, I, and, I and I did a show recently with a filmmaker who made a, a film about the legacy of the Civil War, and it's still being argued over. And there are people absolutely. in the South who still don't call it the Civil War; they call it the War between the States and the War be, of the Northern Invasion. So it hasn't really no. been resolved. Oh yeah, and I mean. You know, one of the things I did researching the book was like, well, what would an American occupation look like? And, you know, then you go and talk to sons of Confederate veterans and you're like, oh, there has been an occupation in America. It was called Reconstruction. Um, it, it lasted in, from the end of the war till 1876. And, you know, what happened was the South essentially created these terrorist groups that, you know, the, the North you know, could neither defeat nor uh, make peace with. So eventually they gave the South essentially home rule and that and that was the solution to it. So, Jim yeah, Crow. I mean, it, it, yeah, Jim Crow and and the whole and the and the well, the end of Reconstruction and the return of de- explicit white supremacy to the South. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's um, there's no question that uh, that's that civil war lasts forever. I mean, I think its wounds are still very much alive. I mean, I certainly certainly heard it. And I mean, I did part of the reporting on 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 UNC on the Silent Sam. That's in the book. That's a chapter of the book. And you know, the, the, these symbols are contested with utter urgency. Like with the statues that were put up in the 1870s are contested with extreme sense of their 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 moment being right now. So, yeah, and that's that that's 150 years later. So it's not something to take lightly. It's not something to be glib about. But I wanted to create these fictional worlds because I also feel like sometimes this stuff just doesn't register. Right. Like like when the Oath Keepers list came out and it was revealed that, like, there were serious members of militias in police departments all over America and relatively senior levels of Republican of the Republican Party all over legitimate institutions like that was the week the rust shooting happened. And all all anyone talked about was the rust shooting. I I, I mean, I I was like, yeah, this this is this people need to know what is going on here. People need to know that like people need to see where this is headed with as much clarity as possible. Uh, I mentioned you have five different chapters with uh, theoretical triggers for civil war. And the first one takes place on a small two-lane bridge in a rural county. What happens? Well, a, a sheriff um, who, the when the EPA come to repair a, a falling bridge and, and essentially stop it, uh, which then, of course, is annoying to everyone in the county, uh, the local sheriff, who's only accountable really to the local residents, decides to practice interposition, which means that he defies the federal authority. And then through the Internet and through um, through essentially the the uh, the mechanisms of uh, siloed information that America runs on, this becomes a rallying cry for the far right and a kind of Charlottesville slash January 6th event. 
And then you have the military coming in and the president coming in to try and figure out how they're going to, uh, you know, how they're going to deal with uh, with a with a group who no longer recognize a group of Americans who no longer recognizes the legitimacy of the American government. And that's a very complicated technical, legal and military issue. And the U.S. Army uses lethal force to end the standoff. I mean, they have done that before. Like there, there have been incidents of the U.S. military engagement in like the 1992 L.A. riots. And I mean, some of the some of the executive orders from that period are still kind of the model that would be used by the military. Uh, also in Arkansas, where, you know, they put the National State Guard, they commanded them to barracks because they didn't want cross loyalties uh, with the with, with the people of Arkansas. So. You know, there have been incidents before. There is some legal precedent, but it's also really quite messy. And, um, you know, part of that is inevitable. Like part of it is that if you're waging war against your own people, that that becomes complicated. Um, And also part of it is specific to America, which really doesn't have a mechanism for declaring state emergencies quite the same way as other countries. Like in my country, uh, you know, in 1970, the government declared national uh, declared martial law. So that just suspended all rights for the whole country uh, while while we you know, while there was a, a real threat of Quebec separatist terrorism. So, you know, that that was kind of a, a sort of legal option that that's just not on the table in America. That There's no real mechanism for doing that. Uh, another chapter is uh, the assassination of a Democratic president. Actually, it's not a Democratic president. The president could be from either side. Um, But it would be more likely to be a Democrat under the current circumstances, don't you think? Statistically, statistically, that's true. But, you know, that doesn't mean it's it's, it's impossible either way. There are certainly violent people on the left, although... Uh, to be clear, like much a much smaller group and and m- with a much smaller tendency to violence, um, but you know n- not to say that that's impossible. The, the, the you know uh, of course assassination in American history is not unusual. In fact, it's quite common. Like it, one out of eleven presidents have been assassinated. A, a little a little less than that, which makes it the most dangerous job in the world, right? Mm. I mean, uh, you really should get danger pay if one out of 11 people who take your job get killed. Um, And that's specific to America. You know, there's only been one uh, attempt on an Australian prime minister's life. Only one British prime minister was assassinated in 1814. Um, Assassination is kind of an American phenomenon. Uh, But the, the point of that chapter really is that if an American president were to be assassinated now, it would not be a collective act of mourning. Like it would, it would be one side would cheer and the one side would cheer and and think the assassin was a hero, and the other side would mourn and think that the assassin was a monster. So it's really a way of examining the point where hyperpartisanship reaches in beyond beyond the sense of a collective nation, beyond a sense of of solidarity between each other, which of course America long ago reached. Hyperpartisanship is you know these are really competing kinds of America now. Now, another chapter is about uh, the destruction of New York City in a super hurricane. Why would that lead to civil yeah. war? Well, um, you know, climate 
climate change is a major driver of conflict. I mean, the 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 military calls it a threat multiplier. Uh, it's the kind of thing that just like, for example, um, the Trump build a wall thing. I mean, that was largely as a result of large groups of people from Central America moving north because of climate change and the resulting violence. I mean, so you can already it's already in effect that, that climate change is disrupt, disrupting American politics. But, you know, the. Um, one of the models that I spoke to, one of the models that I uh, read and used in the book, um, envisions uh, 13 million climate change refugees in, in America by 2050. So that's a huge roving group of people moving around the United States. Um, New York is hugely vulnerable to sea change and hugely vulnerable to um to hurricanes because you know the 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 reinsurer that i spoke to that's the you know the one of the leading experts on climate change who i mean his his opinions people people make trillions of dollars of wagers on his opinion of climate change and he thinks that hurricanes hitting the eastern seaboard are going to make huge amounts of the eastern seaboard uninsurable essentially um you know so when you combine that with the fact that new york you know doesn't have a seawall which is genuinely shocking to me uh like i I mean there's a lot of things in this book that shock me but that one i just i just can't quite believe that that has not been built um and then and then the and then the fact that new york infrastructure is so dense and so uh expensive to rebuild that you know unlike new orleans or even miami or certainly houston um where you know, you can it, it, rebuilding from a flood can be expensive, but possible. You know, rebuilding New York, um, it's just a, it's just a, such a vast undertaking that it it probably wouldn't be possible if a if a if a significant hurricane, uh, you know, took out huge chunks of its infrastructure. And the other thing is the models of that are just unbelievable. Like they like the, the researchers on that, like they know to the street. Um, what will happen when a hurricane hits New York. So that was a real case of like just taking the research and making it real, right? Just showing like, okay, you know, what would it happen? What would happen when Gowanus is underwater, right? Like when, when, Red, when Red Hook doesn't exist anymore. Um, We've it, seen like, a it, it hints of that already. Of that. We've seen hints of that yes, already. Yes, of course. I, I do want to tell my audience yeah. that they're listening to Leonard Lopez at Lodge and WBAI, New York 99.5 FM. And my guest is Stephen March, whose latest book is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. Uh, now, um, the, the final uh, – there's another chapter that you devote to the detonation of a dirty bomb in Washington, D.C., Right. I mean, and, it's and really that, about and, and um, that 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 looked like it could have happened. Uh, there was uh, they're still searching for yeah. a man who um, who who uh, dropped a couple of bombs in front of uh, uh, important buildings. Yeah, the the pipe bombs. I mean, mm-hmm. I did have to throw out several chapters writing this book because they did happen. Um, but you know, uh, like the the um, the thing about. The dirty, you know, they have caught many accelerationists. Well, not many, several accelerationists and Nazis with low-grade dirty bomb-style nuclear weapons. Um, the, the point of that really is like the spectacular, like what what um, 
what what often causes these breakdowns in other countries is spectacular acts of violence. Like it's not necessarily the grinding violence; it's acts of spectacle which make people feel that everything's out of control. Well, Kazakhstan um, right now, you know, the government is shooting uh, citizen protesters to kill. In Kazakhstan, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. Like, it, it, and that and that feels like it's spiraling out of control. So mm-hmm. then, Russia, you know, then they take extraordinary measures. They let Russia in, the Russian military in, which they'll never get out again. But that's that's a, that's a separate question. Um, you know, I, so it was really a question of like, could you, what would an occupation of the United States look like? Talking to the real experts on counterinsurgency, of course, and America, of course, has many of those because it has undertaken counterinsurgency around the world. And um, they, the, the people who have who, who know about counterinsurgency, who have done it, who have studied it, who, who really understand it, they are highly not optimistic about the chances of the U.S. military actually being able to slow political violence once it starts. Um, some people think it might be possible, but th- th- that's as far as they'll go. They'll say it might be possible. They, they won't. They will certainly would never say it would be likely. Um, so, yeah, that was that was. And, and then, of course, what it takes to actually try and control violence in these situations, which involves really harsh suspensions of civil liberties, surveillance, segregation of cities. Um, you know, it, it would render America unrecognizable. You say American liberals in the major cities retain a kind of desperate faith in the country's institution that amounts nearly to delusion. And uh, are, there's, it looks like trouble is definitely ahead. As of 2010, we're talking mm-hmm. about uh, 12 years ago almost, half of Republicans and one-third of Democrats said they'd be unhappy if their children were to marry someone who supported the opposing party. And the Pew, Pew Research Research has determined that 58% of Republicans have a very unfavorable view of Democrats, while 55% of Democrats view Republicans unfavorably. Uh, we're already kind of at, at war with each other, aren't we? Yeah, and, and those markers, like those hyperpartisanship markers, like would you marry? Would you want your ch- kids to marry somebody of the other party? Would you hire somebody of the other party? Those are much stronger markers than for race. Right. I mean, think about that. Like they're 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 much stronger than they are for race, which is astonishing, really. Uh, Yeah. Race is a factor in all of this discussion. Yes. Well, yes. And, and, you know, Republican Party has leads these has had this remarkable increase in racial resentment levels. Um, You know, the 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 Democratic Party has basically stayed the same, but the Republican numbers have gone off the charts. Um, The the. one of the more fascinating studies I read was where they did this analysis from people's phones about Thanksgiving dinners where um, Republic- Republicans and Democrats, where they were, where they did the, like geolocation where people went from Democratic le- uh, ridings to uh, to Republican districts and vice versa. And what they found is that if you were uh, the sort of bipartisan Thanksgiving dinners lost about an hour and a half like people wouldn't people wouldn't eat Thanksgiving dinner with each other in the same family because of politics, which is really I mean, that should you know, you can't even enjoy Thanksgiving together. Like you can't even celebrate the joy of all this prosperity in America. Uh, you know, it's it's like, yeah, it's 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 hyperpartisan. It's hard to know how we could get any more hyperpartisan. To be we frank. have just about a minute and a half left. But uh are you implying that the system is broken and the way out is reinvention or or fall? 
Yes. I mean, I, I think there is hope in America. Like Americans are the great people of reinvention. They've they've reinvented. They reinvented politics itself at the beginning at the beginning of their country. They've reinvented themselves more than any other country. And they they are personally the great you know apostles of reinvention. But the, what I'm saying is that moment that moment has come again, like the moment to reinvent the country has come again, because, you know, the one hope that really has to be marginalized as we put aside is the idea that this is all going to work out that like you're going to have the burning of the sixties and then you're going to have the seventies again with disco and all that and, and all the rest of it. It's like, that's, that's not going to happen. Like this is going one direction and you either have to come to some very serious um, you know, changes to the constitution and to the structure of government, or you will no longer be living in a democracy. And Canada will suddenly be flooded with a whole bunch of people trying to escape. <laughs> we are going to be in trouble. I mean, when, when, you know, the, the Justin Trudeau's or father, Pierre Trudeau, when he was prime minister, yeah, he said, uh, he said, you know, living next to America is like sleeping next to an elephant, right? It doesn't matter how nice the elephant is. You feel every tick. Right. And yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely in trouble. Stephen March's latest book is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future, published by Avid Reader Press. Uh, he is a Canadian novelist and culture writer who's written for The Atlantic, New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, New Yorker, Esquire, and many other outlets. And my great thanks to him for being on our show today. Thank you so much. Pleasure. I'm a huge fan, by the way. Oh, well... Uh, after reading this book, I'm a fan as well. Uh, that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're just discovering our program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you can get your podcasts. And if you'd like to send me your comments about a program, past or present or just to say hello, you can email me at leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to wbai.org or by calling 212 209-2950 right now. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, anyone who makes a one-time contribution of $75 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now will receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future by my guest Stephen March. The important thing is that you step up to show your support for Leonard Lopate at Large and the station that brings it to you weekdays for 1 to 2 p.m. So why not make that call now at 21 to 209-2950 or go to give to wbai.org right now. DAI, WBAI is sponsored 100% by listener donations and um, that puts us in a, sometimes in a rather um, vulnerable place. If we were on the CBC where my guest uh, well, my guest lives in Canada. Uh, there are license fees for listening to the CBC. We rely 100% on the generosity of our listeners. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopez at Large, why not tell us that you appreciate what we do on this show 
by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play your part in keeping this historic station, the only one on New York Radio Dell that's entirely listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible donation. We hope you can join us again for tomorrow's show when industrial hygienist and regular contributor to this program, Monona Russell, will discuss how to play safe as the pandemic, fueled by the Omicron variant, surges in New York and across the nation. We'll see you then.